Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 3 When Zarathustra came to the nearest town, which lay on the edge of the forest, he found there a crowd of people gathered in the market square, for it had been announced that a rope dancer would be appearing. And Zarathustra spoke to the people thus, I teach to you the overhuman. The human is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome it? All beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And you want to be the ebb of this great tide, and even go back to the beasts rather than overcome the human? What is the ape for the human being? A laughingstock or a painful cause for shame. And the human shall be just that for the overhuman. A laughingstock or a painful cause for shame. You have made your way from worm to human, and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now the human being is still more of an ape than any ape is. Whoever is the wisest among you is still no more than a discord and hybrid between plant and specter. But do I bid you become specters or plants? Behold, I teach to you the overhuman. The overhuman is the sense of the earth. May your will say, let the overhuman be the sense of the earth. I beseech you, my brothers, stay true to the earth and do not believe those who talk of over-earthly hopes. They're poison mixers, whether they know it or not. They are despisers of life, moribund, and poison themselves, of whom the earth is weary. So let them pass on. Once sacrilege against God was the greatest sacrilege. But God died, and thereby the sacrilegious died too. Sacrilege against the earth is now the most terrible thing, and to revere the entrails of the unfathomable more than a sense of the earth. Once the soul looked despisingly upon the body, and at that time this despising was the highest thing. She wanted the body to be lean, ghastly, and starved. Thus she thought to slip away from the body and the earth. Oh, this soul was herself still lean, ghastly, and starved, and cruelty was the lust of this soul. But you too, my brothers, tell me, what does your body proclaim about your soul? Is your soul not poverty and filth and wretched contentment? Verily, a polluted stream is the human. One must be a veritable sea to absorb such a polluted stream without becoming unclean. Behold, I teach to you the overhuman. It is this sea. In this can your great despising submerge itself. What is the greatest you could experience? It is the hour of the great despising, the hour in which even your happiness disgusts you, and likewise your reason and your virtue. The hour when you say, What good is my happiness? It is poverty and filth and wretched contentment. But my happiness should justify existence itself. The hour when you say, What good is my reason? Does it crave knowing as the lion craves its food? It is poverty and filth and wretched contentment. The hour when you say, What good is my virtue? 
it has yet to set me raging. How tired I am of my good and my evil. All that is poverty and filth and wretched contentment. The hour when you say, What good is my righteousness? I do not see that I am a blaze of hot coals. But one who is righteous is a blaze of hot coals. The hour when you say, What good is my pitying? Is not pity the cross upon which he who loves humankind is nailed? But my pitying is no crucifixion. Have you ever spoken thus? Have you ever cried thus? Ah, that I might already have heard you cry thus. Not your sin, your frugality rails against heaven. The very avarice in your sin rails against heaven. Where then is the lightning to lick you with its tongue? Where is the madness with which you must be inoculated? Behold, I teach to you the overhuman. It is this lightning. It is this madness. When Zarathustra had spoken thus, someone from among the people shouted, We've heard enough about the rope dancer. Now let us see him too. And all the people laughed at Zarathustra. But the rope dancer, thinking the words concerned him, began his performance. Hey everyone, and welcome to Zarathustra's Prologue Part 3. Uh, this is the first of three prologue sections where we really get into sort of a high-level summary of Zarathustra's gift to humanity in terms of his idea of the overhuman, the ubermensch. In this section, Zarathustra introduces the idea, sort of pins it as a fact of reality or a possible fact of reality that can be achieved. He then goes on to, in this section, talk about the main sort of aspect of one's soul or type of person that is antithetical to this idea. And he ends this section trying to sort of stir up discontent uh, within the people that he meets in the market square and in us ourselves when we read this, trying to make us feel kind of bad about ourselves, ashamed about ourselves to hopefully direct that energy towards building ourselves forward into the future and thus allowing the overman to possibly live. In section four, he expands on this a little bit and he gives sort of less high level but still fairly high level characteristics of people that are his type of person. So the types of characteristics that he enjoys in humans that sort of lead to positive growth in our lives, positive growth of our type of organism through time, and then hopefully over the course of subsequent generations, leads to a more highly evolved type of man compared to what we then see in the fifth section, a lower type of man. Uh, and so Zarathustra bases all of his speeches and ideas on the fact of reality that evolution exists, and he thinks that we can either continue ascending similar to how single-cell organisms become double-cell organisms, become uh, lizards, become giant dinosaurs, and then when the dinosaurs died out, you had small rodents, and then the rodents evolved into more complex forms that were more capable of varied tasks. Uh, so Zarathustra, he's trying to pin his gift to humanity, his whole philosophy on development towards continual ascendance of the type man. And in section 5, after the crowd that he's talking to continues to mock him or not understand him. He presents the, the opposite type. 
and the types of beliefs that people have that lead to sort of a de-evolution and towards the diminution of man, towards a ever lowering of the type man. So the next three sections, we're going to be speaking at a very high level about Zarathustra's sort of overall philosophy, Nietzsche's overall philosophy. And there are aspects of this that make this difficult. Again, we haven't even gotten into the, into the sort of meat of this book. Uh, and there are even, even individual sentences or groups of two or three sentences in the next couple of uh, prologue sections that will have entire chapters or multiple chapters dedicated to themselves later in this book. So I'm going to try, like I just did for the three sections overall, to just go very high level, sort of describe what Nietzsche's setting up, what Zarathustra's setting up, try and give you a little bit of an overview, and then move on quickly so that we can actually get into the book. So prologue section three, Zarathustra comes to the nearest town and he meets a crowd of people, and they're all waiting around, waiting for this rope dancer, this tightrope walker, to start dancing. The very first thing he says to them is, I teach to you the overhuman. The human is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome it? All beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And you want to be the ebb of this great tide and even go back to the beast rather than overcome the human? Nietzsche was writing about 30 years, I believe, after Charles Darwin came up with his theory of evolution. Uh, so we see definitely in Nietzschean philosophy this sort of strong, strong focus on development, on the development of different traits through time, on the development of different types of species over time. Uh, you'll see a lot in Nietzsche in all of his work, uh, focus on, he speaks a lot about the development of different psychological traits over time. The Genealogy of Morals is a great little book that tries to explain the origin in very human terms of a variety of different psychological traits, such as the valuations good and bad, the valuations good and evil, where bad consciences come from. And so this is a strong trend in German philosophy, starting with Hegel and Schopenhauer, as I mentioned a bit in the introduction, where they start to see life as being this ever-building process. And Nietzsche definitely carries on with that and applies it into the biological sphere and he's sort of pinning his hopes and dreams of, uh, of humanity on this overhuman type character, which, as we'll see later on, is sort of the idealization in a biological entity of all the different traits that Zarathustra and Nietzsche think are beneficial to humanity and that are in accordance with reality and sort of it's sort of the, the highest ideal that you can have as a human being. He, he's basically. A good analogy might be if you traveled back in time and you met Homo erectus or met some chimpanzees and you were able to communicate to them the idea of human beings and how complex and amazing and how much more developed we are in certain ways and trying to get them to aim towards that. So in this first section when he's introducing the overman, the overhuman, the superman, the ubermensch, uh, don't get confused by maybe some popular conceptions of what he meant by ubermensch when we use the word superman in the english-speaking world a lot of people think of a guy who wears blue tights and can jump over buildings in a single leap and fly and all that stuff don't think about that simply think about uh, evolution in a continued upward trend uh, so just think about what i said about talking to chimps and trying to convince them to become humans same sort of thing just 
over the next period of time, if human beings struggle and challenge themselves and continue to do so and pass those traits down through the generations, generally Nietzsche's idea is we can continue pushing the tendency of life forward in a positive way. And he immediately starts to try and make us feel ashamed of ashamed of where we came from and ashamed of ourselves right now. And there's a lot in this prologue where he uses sort of the negative feelings uh, that humans are capable of as sort of a motivator to be better. And I think that's something that you're going to find a lot in this book. And Nietzsche, being the wonderful psychologist that he is, he'll be able to identify things about us as the readers that we probably aren't even aware of, but he'll be able to identify spots where in our mindsets and in our attitudes we're sort of weak, and he'll admonish us to sort of strengthen ourselves. There's a a maxim that we'll see later in the book where Nietzsche sort of tries to tell everyone to become hard, to become just a strong sort of impenetrable force in the world. And so even you see here when he says, you've made your way from worm to human and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes and even now the human being is still more of an ape than any ape is. He's trying to say, look, we're not the end of evolution. There's still this process going on and look at yourselves. You're so proud of who you are, but still there's so much in you that is weak and small and evolutionarily simple. We can, let's, let's set our sights somewhat higher. Um, so after doing that, he has this big proclamation and the Graham Parks translation, I don't really like for this sentence. I think this sentence is important and while the word he uses is often translated this way, uh, when it's translated from German, a bunch of different philosophers use this word. I prefer the other words that you could translate this to. So he, he says, the overhuman is the sense of the earth. May your will say, let the overhuman be the sense of the earth. And so the German word here that Nietzsche uses is Zinn, S-I-N-N. And Parks translated, translates it as sense. I prefer meaning. Zin can also be translated to be meaning. So Nietzsche here proclaims, the overhuman is the meaning of the earth. May your will say, let the overhuman be the meaning of the earth. And so after prologue section two, where Nietzsche proclaims after meeting the old man that God is dead, that sort of, in terms of world history and world philosophy, Nietzsche's proclamation that the the legitimacy of viewing the world in a religious sense, uh, and more specifically a Christian, Platonic, Judeo sense, uh, it's no longer tenable. And since human action, and this is I think really where we can convert all these highfalutin philosophical learnings that we're going to be doing into very practical self-improvement uh, tips and insights, is that when you're sort of born or you're operating in the world or you're doing whatever, it's, it's really hard to have a sense of what you should do, what actions you should take, what things you should believe, the, the attitude you should have towards life, towards other people, towards different types of people. And for a long, long time, uh, conscientious people, people who really cared about how they acted, would ask these questions and sort of the 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 valuations that people had came from religion and so that's based on this sort of platonic idea that the universe in itself is good 
God in itself is good. Since that's the basis of everything, we should try and align our ethical actions in accordance with that. And so that's sort of the the basement, the ground floor, the fundamental starting point of all ethics is saying, okay, the universe is this good thing. We should try and be good to everyone. And anything that isn't good, the human drives, everything that's ugly about this transitory, destructive world, uh, those are merely appearance. Those are the work of the devil. Whereas really the things that are pure and clean and good and that we should follow are uh, actions that are good, things that have to do with the soul and spirit. Because when it comes to the human body and the human mind, and this is an old way of seeing the body and mind. They, most people saw it as two different things for the longest time. Most people said, okay, well, obviously the body is similar to this transitory world in that my body ages and it breaks down and uh, it's maybe you're a bit fat or maybe you're a bit ugly or maybe you're not this perfect Greek Adonis. And even if you are, you age and grow old and die. Uh, so your body seems to be related to this transitory world, which seems evil. And since we know that the basis of the universe is good, we should struggle against this transitory, ugly reality. Whereas compared to the body, the, the ideas that we have in our mind, in our spirit, they tend to be perfect. Ideas tend to be, have this sort of perfectness, this perfect quality. They're not really transitory. They seem to have some permanence. And so... The old psychological trick that a lot of religious people made was to associate the spirit with uh, true perfect reality. Since true perfect reality is perfect in itself, it's perfect good, it's perfect uh, wonderful joy and everything, and that's sort of the basis of everything. And since the ideas of the spirit sort of are analogous to that, they, they made this assumption that the things of the spirit, the things of the soul are what should be focused on and we should focus our spirit and soul on good things because the basis of reality is good. And so uh, in terms of ethical actions and how individuals sort of took that philosophical insight into reality as a motivation and a guide for how to behave and which way to uh, take a stand towards different things in life, which way to act towards different people. Uh, it basically, that very fundamental philosophical insight turns into the, turns into the, the, the guideline, what would Jesus do or, or how, what would God want me to do? I'm going to dedicate my life to God. So in terms of self-help and trying to develop yourself, the, the old model based on the reality of God and the existence of God sort of led to this I'm going to try and be good as much as I can and try and not be evil as much as I can because that seems to be the fundamental prerogative of the universe. And so Nietzsche comes along and says, God is dead. We, we can no longer believe in that fundamental reality behind the scenes that's pure good. As we're going to see, and as I alluded to a little bit in the introduction, he's very much focused on this sort of will to power idea that uh, there is no reality behind the scenes, that everything is this transitory reality we see in front of us. And not only that, that this reality seems to be moving in a way that tends towards more complexity and higher development because it's will to power. And so he sort of says the overhuman is the meaning of the earth. It's no longer God is the meaning of life. It's the overhuman. It's self-development. It's sort of urging yourself on so that you, your descendants, your friends, everyone around you sort of 
develops forward and continues this trend of positive evolution. And so that's how I think uh, basically we're going to use this idea of the overhuman and what Nietzsche has to say in the rest of this book about the qualities and traits of the overhuman and what psychological tricks we're going to need to sort of root out in our own heads as a result of 2,000 years of living with Christianity and all our institutions and learnings and ways of thinking being based on Christianity. Throughout the book, he's going to be picking at those things and showing us sort of pictures of good or nice traits that he thinks are the things that will lead to the continual ascendancy of man that we ourselves should try and continue to grow within ourselves. And then on the other hand, Nietzsche and Zarathustra will be showing us pictures of negative traits that have to do with remnants of that sort of psychology of thinking that the world is essentially good in its nature. And then he'll try and tell us and make us ashamed and feel bad about ourselves because those are stupid opinions to have now. We no longer should have them so that we try and root them out or try and convert them into, into positive things that are uh, conducive to our growth. So uh, after he says the overhuman is the sense of the earth, he then goes on to give a little bit of an overview. And again, there's going to be several sections of this in the actual book about the main antithetical disposition towards life and towards this meaning of the earth. And so he talks about the type of soul that believes in over-earthly hopes. They are poison mixers, whether they know it or not. They are despisers of life, more abundant poison themselves, of whom the earth is weary, so let them pass on. And so he's talking about the type of soul that I discussed a bit earlier that doesn't like the world in front of it because it's ugly or mean or cruel or hard to live in and tries to cast itself beyond reality to this realm of the good, realm of good ideas and good with like a capital G. And so there's going to be a number of things where Nietzsche's sort of railing against those tendencies and railing against some of the weakness of soul or some of the softness of soul that leads to having those dispositions. Elsewhere, I don't think he says it in this book, not in so many words, but he says it elsewhere. He says that, I think it's in Twilight of the Idols. He says that people only created God, created the world behind, and created this perfect idea because they had weak souls, they were soft, that they suffered too much, and so they had to create a perfect world so that they could cast doubt and slander this world that they hated this world so much, they suffered so much from it, that they created a perfect world, that they could then say that this world was bad because the other world was perfect. They, they put up this false comparison to be able to cast doubt on this world and to be able to metaphysically denounce the, the world that we live in. And so Nietzsche sees that sort of that instinct or that trait as being the most damaging possible thing that we, we can not only build ourselves on, but build our institutions and build our political decisions and build our society on. In this section, and I know it's, I've had trouble recording this section because it's a very condensed amount of philosophy, but he basically says, here's the overhuman, very high level, the overhuman is the whole point of the earth. Here's this other thing, this other mindset that led to 2,000 years of uh, religious oppression towards human life. This is the main enemy that we're going to face. And he then goes on to finish this section off, basically talking to the people in the crowd. And 
I think the prologue is the one time Nietzsche doesn't refer to the people in the crowd as a very negative word, such as the herd or the rabble or the mob. Generally, Nietzsche, he's a philosopher that likes great people, and since his philosophy is very much evolution-based, he tends to favor the people who are sort of leading that evolutionary curve through time. Uh, Nietzsche himself thought that he was a genius ahead of his time, and he certainly was. And so there's definitely this sort of anger that he has against sort of the general population and how herd-like and how sheep-like they are. And so in this last section, before he sort of realizes that they are mob, they are rabble, they are these sheep-like creatures, he's trying to encourage them to feel bad about themselves. He says, okay, well, you, well, most people probably don't have this sort of anti-life mentality that we're going to talk about later in this book. While most of the mob don't have that anti-life mentality, your souls are still filled with poverty and filth and wretched contentment that basically he spends the rest of the time trying to make people feel bad about how ugly their souls are, how sort of undeveloped they are. And he tries to focus their, he tries to sort of rile them up to make them angry at themselves so that they then get the energy to sort of work on work on themselves in a positive way. It's like if someone made me really angry and I filled up with a bunch of just angry stress energy, uh, if I was to channel that positively and go to the gym, that would be beneficial to me and help me work towards positive goals. And so that's sort of what Nietzsche is doing here in a very, well, he's, going, he's cutting, he's trying to get to people's hearts and he's trying to really cut deep to make them really offended and we're going to see that a lot in this book if we are conscientious and through the course of this lecture series, if you're the sort of person that really, really takes a moment to think about yourself and really considers who you are and the way that you're perceived and the things that you do, um, a lot of these messages are going to cut deep. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that people who are sensitive to their own characters and their own development, while in the short term... You may constantly be under attack by your own conscience and sort of blaming yourself or kicking yourself for being so stupid. And I, a number of times I've, I've sort of realized, uh, I've had these dawning realizations about myself where I sort of sit there, I'm like, damn it, I've been doing this weird thing for four months. Like, that's, oh, I look like an idiot. I've been treating my friends wrong. I've been doing this wrong. Wow, I can't believe it. And in the short term, sort of cycling continually through those sorts of realizations is painful because you start to you start to think that you're you're a worthless creature you start to like think that you're not very good but through time as you fix those issues and sometimes you you go in a bit of a circle and you keep forgetting certain lessons that you've learned but this whole thing is a learning process so just stick with it it'll as soon as you start to fix those things you will see the results you will get better and when you compare yourself to someone who isn't that conscientious who maybe is one of these people just standing around mocking Zarathustra instead of listening to him. I know there's a bunch of people who, uh, whether I've gone to school with them or worked with them or just they're friends of friends or whatever, there's those people who take poses and stances about themselves and they think that they're so cool and they're God's greatest gift to earth, but they've never introspected at all. They've never considered at all how they're coming across. They've never considered at all uh, the way that they're doing things. And I find that those people... A lot of people get tricked by that, and they're like, wow, this person is so cool. Look at the way that he is high-fiving everyone and just sort of being a douchebag. Um, 
there's they sort of stagnate they don't improve and i think that one of the basic principles that i have found to be tremendously helpful and that sort of nietzsche here is using very much to to his benefit and the benefit of mankind generally is the more introspective you are the more critically honest you are towards yourself and the the harsher you are towards yourself in enforcing some of the insights that you come up with about yourself and really trying to change is that you can really your your self-development and the type of person you can become is is very high level you can by being critical by being uh, judgmental about yourself and by embracing some of the negative energy that we're going to feel when we go through this book and realize how stupid we are in some ways if you channel that into self-development the the rewards are immense and so the, he sort of ends this section encouraging people to feel bad about all the characteristics about them and try and emphasize that they should be and could be more than what they are that all these things within us should be at a higher level. And he's trying to make us feel bad. And he's basically saying that it's not that you're doing, it's not that you're doing stupid things or making stupid decisions. It's that you don't feel things uh, highly enough and you don't have that passion to sort of push yourself forward. So he says, where then is the lightning to lick you with its tongue? Where is the madness with which you must be inoculated? Behold, I teach to you the overhuman. It is this lightning. It is this madness. And again, he's basically saying the idea of developing yourself and creating something beyond yourself and, and not just some weird distant ideal in the future of the overhuman, but it's a real thing that we need to work on uh, every day where you sort of live passionately and try and work on yourself and try and be the best version of yourself possible because that's the only way that this overhuman guy can live. Nietzsche is basically putting that in place of God in terms of the highest value you can have, the highest thing that you can work towards. And he's basically saying this should be the anchor for all your decisions. The love of this idea, the love of self-development, the love of who you are fundamentally and how you can build yourself through time should be this lightning. It should be this madness. And it will it will strike you into action. It will get you to go do things. And so I think that's about enough for prologue part three. It's sort of, again, a very high-level introduction where he sort of unveils his gift to humanity, sort of pins it in terms of natural processes of evolution and how reality actually works, immediately moves from there to saying that, describe, he moves from there to describe the main sort of antithetical mindset towards that ultimate goal of reality and then he sort of tries to rile us up and get us started with introspecting and feeling bad about ourselves so that we develop that energy to then focus towards becoming the overmen or working towards that. And when we get into prologue section four, we'll get into slightly more detailed characteristics and virtues that Nietzsche will describe the overman or people who are leading towards the overman as having. So once he's riled us up and given us sort of this passionate energy to take on this fundamentally, existentially crucial, important task, and very meaning-laden, it, it gives everyone a very important sense of their own lives. Um, and that's, again, we're going to see how Nietzsche deals with nihilism in this book. But the answer is the overhuman, continually f creating meaning for yourself and figuring out who you are. And in the next section, once we have that sort of passion and introspection sort of riled up, Nietzsche will, will give us some very high-level descriptions of where to channel that energy.
Um, so thank you. I know this was a very sort of dense section. The next couple will also be fairly dense. Uh, again, I'll try and give a high-level overview, but this is all good stuff. I, I really like this book. I really like that we've met the Overman, and we will get into, when we get into the actual book, much more thorough descriptions of what the Overman is, why Nietzsche thinks that he can exist, why Nietzsche thinks that uh, he's sort of the meaning of the earth and why this self-development thing is important. And we'll get into a lot more really, I want to say nitty-gritty, but it's not nitty-gritty because it's the, I don't know, I find this stuff very fun and very interesting. And so Nietzsche, Nietzsche does a great job taking on very interesting problems. And he comes at it from such a great perspective that I'm excited to get through this high-level overview that we're seeing in the prologue and really get into that nitty-gritty. So I will see you guys in section four. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @alexjdrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.